Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. This proverb is a real gem. It has to do with planning for life and engaging in it. First, life is a journey. It is all about movement. We start out as a little tiny baby, and hopefully we end up old and wrinkly. Wisdom tells us that journeys require plans. If you won't plan for your journey, then you may find yourself lost, hungry, and cold. And you won't have anybody but yourself to blame. In the same way, if we won't be proactive in life, we will be victims of life. If we won't plan for the future or plan for the imminent, they will eat us for lunch. We will be at the mercy of the elements. Usually this is the difference between poverty and wealth. Or just getting by and excelling in life. Now because God is gracious, even non-planners get to eat. But because God is just, they don't eat as well. Second, the nature of journeys is that you go where you haven't gone before. This is why you need counsel to establish your plans. If you seek and receive guidance and advice, you will know which road to take and which one to avoid. In life, wisdom dictates that you can and should obtain counsel in many different realms. In faith, in finances, in career, in love, and in war. Because of sin, Until the coming of our Lord, life is war. There's a cosmic conflict that we are all engaged in, good versus evil. The Christian life is a military life. In Ephesians, Paul uses the instruments of war to describe the tools of the Christian. We have a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, boots of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This sword, the Word of God, is the ultimate wise counsel. It is the road map on the journey of life. In it, God grants us a direct word by His Spirit. He wrote it, and He has given it to us. He has ordained its passage through time, and its substance is faithful and powerful. In this word, God reveals himself to us. And part of that is that he tells us where we fit in the cosmic story and the cosmic war. The blessing of it is that we also know the glorious outcome of our battle. We do not fight in vain if we fight for Christ. But if we fight for Christ, we must be pure and holy set apart for the work that God calls us to. And that means that we must repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. That is wise counsel. 
and the path to victory in our war. This reminds us to confess our sins. Please kneel as you're willing to kneel. Jesus. God has filled them with the Holy Spirit and they have been given power. Power to do signs and wonders, to heal, to cast out demons, and to convict. The church was growing rapidly, and at the same time, it was pure and holy. The fear of God laying upon both the believers and the unbelievers alike. When the people heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Today we'll see that even though the gospel was in a period of undeniable glory and growth, it still had enemies in the world. In our text, the apostles came into conflict again with the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. Acts 5, verses 17 and 18. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Here we see that the leaders of the Sanhedrin were filled with indignation. The word translated indignation here is translated filled with jealousy in other translations of the Bible. It is the Greek term zelos. It's from where we get the, the English word zeal from. It means zeal. And when it's used negatively, as it is here, it means jealousy. The high priest and his cronies were riled up. Their spirit, spirits were furious. And they were jealous of the power of the apostles and the effectiveness of their ministry, their popularity with the people. Moreover, they were more than a little perturbed at the essence of the gospel message, which they had been told at the last trial. Namely, the essence of the gospel message was that they were guilty of murdering the Messiah. And God had intervened in history, and he was against them. Remember, the story of Acts is the story of Jesus' continued work in the world. Through his, through his apostles and by means of his spirit. This is the story of two competing kingdoms. The kingdom of Jesus versus the kingdom of man. The second kingdom has many varied representations. In our text, it consists of the men who had political power in Jerusalem. However, in all of its variations, the kingdom of man ultimately denies the authority and power of Jesus Christ, and it refuses to submit to him. Incidentally, when the church functions as the church, by the Spirit, in wisdom and power and glory, it will always come against the adversaries of Jesus. When we are faithful, we know that we are going to war. If God gives us victory over our own personal demons, 
and delivers us into his kingdom by delivering us from our sin and our damnation. And when we start living his life the way he calls us to, and we, then we are embarking on a great adventure. When you come to Jesus, it's not a peaceful life you come to. We are called to be warriors in the cosmic war between the all-powerful God and the nations who plot vainly against him. These priests and elders and the rulers of the people correctly saw the threat brought before them by the message of the apostles. They were appropriately offended by the message of the gospel. And that's why they threw them in prison. But Jesus is making a point here. Throwing his disciples in prison is not stopping Jesus. He's already proved that vain threats and commands contrary to his won't stop his apostles. But now he is proving that prisons aren't even effective in bottling up the gospel either. Verses 19 to 21. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. In these verses we see that the apostles are set free from prison and, and they're commanded to continue to proclaim God's gospel. Now consider for a moment the experience of the apostles. Here they are, doing what God tells them to do. They're building the church. They're healing the sick. They're accomplishing God's will in Jerusalem. And next thing you know, they, they, get taught, they know, they get tossed into prison. And this is the second time for Peter and John. The next thing that happens is an angel shows up, sets them free, and sends them back out to preach publicly all the words of this life. What's their response? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's simple obedience. No back chat. No talking back. They just do what God tells them to do. Bright and early, they're back at it. They're, they're back in the temple and they're preaching the gospel and they're teaching the people. These were men who were convicted. They were men of conviction. They believed. And they were filled with power by faith. Their response is only possible by faith. Belief that God is God and that he has a message for them and a job for them. And that he's in control and he will bless them according to how he wants to bless them. Sometimes it strikes me that God's servants are like ping pong balls. Getting whacked around, locked up, commanded to leave. Commanded to show up and preach. Commanded to take this journey, to do that thing. They're pawns in his service. God's the sovereign chess master, moving the pieces as he wills. And there go his servants. What's next, Lord? Oh, do this. Oh, do that. Oh, I'm in prison. Nevertheless, by faith, they know that it is for their blessing that God is doing this. One of the central tenets of the Christian faith 
at the absolute heart of what we believe is that our God is good. He loves us, and His plan is for our good and our profit, our benefit, and our blessing. Here the apostles were being witnesses of what God commanded them to witness. Their actions show publicly that they are not afraid, they're not weak, and they're not cowed by the show of power from the high priest and his crew. They feared God, so they could not fear men, or the courts of men. And God vindicated their faith in setting them free from the prison. Of course, the high priest and the Sanhedrin were unaware of this little events. Verses 21 to 25. But the high priest and those who with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. In these verses, the purpose of the council is confounded. The intention of the leaders was to bring shame on the apostles. They were trying to, to cause the apostles to respect the council and to fear their authority. They were full of their own importance, and in their all importance, they convened and called for the prisoners to be brought forth before them. Of course they wondered what the outcome would be when they found out that the prisoners were no longer their prisoners. These events were not normal. These men, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, were not used to being ignored or disobeyed. But for the apostles, not only to have escaped from the prison, but also to be doing precisely what the council had forbidden them to do, in public, in the temple, on the very morning of the trial, was a direct challenge to, to the, the Sanhedrin's authority and position. They meant, their intention was, to bring out broken and contrite prisoners. Not to present bold, powerful preachers who defied them at every turn. What would the outcome be? Let's see. First, they have to wait for the accused to be retrieved because before they can start the trial. Rhetorically, they start at a disadvantage. Even more so because they must be respectful in arresting them this time. Verses 26 through 28. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So not only were the apostles not their prisoners anymore, but now when they went to get them, they had to do so politely because the people loved them and the Sanhedrin feared the people. And now we have the indictment, the accusation against the apostles. 
And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Here, Peter and the other apostles stand accused of being, of disobeying the command of the high priest and bringing an accusation against the leaders of the Jews, namely murder. Notice this. The charge is accurate, and the apostles are guilty of the charge, as stated. In fact, it is their full intention to go right on flouting this court's commands, precisely because they are in direct opposition to the command of God. In one sense, the chief priests are displaying a remarkable gift for memory loss. The sinful heart is capable of incredible hypocrisy and tremendous self-perception. And here's the case in point, Matthew 27, verses 20 to 25. This is is in the uh, narrative of, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. This episode had occurred only about two months prior to this trial. That's like us willfully forgetting what happened at the beginning of July. What was going on for us back then? We were in the middle of Bible Club. It wasn't that long ago. Truman had recently been brought home from the hospital. It wasn't that long ago. It was the Sunday I preached the first sermon from Acts. It wasn't that long ago. We're only in chapter 5. Neither was it a humdrum, everyday event that the apostles were calling to mind. It was a murder perpetrated on the eve of the Passover. These men had to petition Pilate, the governor of the land, to kill Jesus. And then figuratively, they had to twist his arm in order to get him to carry out their abominable plan. These are not events that you can honestly claim to have forgotten within two short months. The essence of the charge against the apostles is that they dared to say these things. But Peter and the other apostles have the Holy Spirit and thus they have courage. Rather than be bullied into submission, they are bold to speak the gospel, come what may. Acts 5, 29-32. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. 
God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The first thing the apostles do is they repeat their former answer to the Sanhedrin. They're saying, we told you the last time we were here that we would not stop preaching Jesus. Why are you surprised that we're preaching Jesus? Speaking of which, they say in their answer, and then they go right on accusing the Jews, preaching Jesus, and spreading their doctrine directly to their accuser's face. They're accused, and Peter says, I'll do you one better. I'm going to do it right now in front of you, to your face. You murdered Jesus, and he is Lord of heaven and earth. And it's proved by our witness and the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles aren't hiding their message. They aren't shy or afraid. Moreover, they aren't the ones on trial. The one thing they are hiding behind is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. They are slaves to Jesus. They are merely ambassadors, witnesses, servants. They're only doing and saying what they're told to do and to say. This is reminiscent of Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Time and time again when the people complained, Moses would say verbatim, Your complaint is not with me or with us. It is with God. That's who your problem is with. This episode is an excellent example of the way Christians are called to minister to the world. When Christians are brought before the tribunals of men, we are to be unabashed before men in the proclamation of Jesus and his work in the world. Here we have prefigured the acts of Boniface, cutting down the sacred oak of Thor, converting the Frisians to Christianity. Here we have Martin Luther standing before the Diet of Worms saying, Here I stand, God helping me, I can do no other. They're just following the examples of the apostles. And the result is the complete frustration of the enemies of God. There is no rebuttal to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. They were furious. The actual rendering of the Greek term here is they were cut to the quick. They were cut through. The truth and the weight of the gospel proclamation was powerful to wipe away all pretense of innocence in their hearts and minds. And they fumed, consumed with their anger, ready to commit the very same crime they stand committed of. But God intervenes yet again. And now we're introduced to Gamaliel. Acts 5, starting at 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. 
For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, then Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. In the Gospels, the Pharisees were regular opponents to Jesus Christ. Though even then, some of them were on pretty close terms with him. For example, Nicodemus was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Another Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him. But Jesus usually rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way because he was more interested in real internal piety, faith, than an outward show of piety. However, after the resurrection with the power of the Holy Spirit and miracles, the Pharisees were more open to the gospel because they believed in a God who intervenes. You can see it here. Gamaliel says, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Later on in Acts, Paul himself, a former Pharisee, will use that party to defend himself, creating division among his accusers. There he says that he's being tried for belief in the resurrection. If you remember from my depiction of the Sanhedrin a few weeks ago, it was composed of a mixture of Sadducees and Pharisees, elders of Israel. The Pharisees and the scribes were popular with the people, deeply spiritual and believers in the supernatural, in angels and the afterlife. And the Sadducees were the aristocracy, the princes of the Jews, political realists, and they did not believe in angels or the resurrection. Gamaliel was a wise man and well-respected. The text says he was a teacher of the law. He understood the scriptures, and he knew how to read history, how to read the times. In his wisdom and by God's grace, he speaks truth, and he, in doing so, he delivers the apostles from the vehemence of the high priest and his faction. And we would do well to learn from the wisdom of Gamaliel. It may seem superfluous for Christians, but it is not. It, it may seem like, well, duh, if you're a Christian, of course you believe. If it's from God, then it'll succeed, and if it's not, if it's from men, then it won't. In the history of the church, there have been episodes that mimic these events. How much better off would the church have been if the Roman church had taken this stand toward the reformers? Instead of burning them at the stake and pronouncing anathema on them. In fact, in the many denominations that exist in Western Christianity, these issues arise again and again on both grand and on local scales. We might go so far as to call what Gamaliel proposes here as we know it. It's a kind of practical Calvinism. Practical Calvinism. And by that, 
I mean that Gamaliel believes in a sovereign God. And his faith frees him up to be wise. It frees him up to be ecumenical. Because we don't need to worry that somebody else's success is our downfall. We just need to worry about whether we are right with God. You cannot fight against God, and if you try, you will lose. God is sovereign. Just because what you see happening doesn't line up with your parameters for what God is doing, or what God could do, or what God will do, or what God might do. Wisdom says that whatever you think about that stuff, you must be humble in that opinion. You are not God. If you want to be wise, you must approach it in the spirit of Gamaliel and say, if this is not of God, then it will come to nothing. And because I am not God, and I cannot stop him, therefore if it is of God, then I cannot stop it. Fear God, for that is the beginning of wisdom. Moreover, the fear of God is exactly what the apostles were accomplishing in their ministry. They had power. They had the Holy Spirit. Liars died before them. Sick were healed. Demons were cast out. Angels were setting them free from prison. And they were openly proclaiming all of this to the Sanhedrin. This is what they said. We ought to obey God rather than men. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And in the end, Gamaliel wins out, as we read in the epilogue, starting in verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. A couple things here. First, the Sanhedrin repeats its limp-wristed injunction to cease and desist regarding preaching Jesus. They do give it the added impetus of a beating. But the apostles must be a little incredulous in regard to this. It must have seemed to them that their words were falling on deaf ears. What part of obey God rather than men was so hard for these men to comprehend? Second, rather than put a damper on things, the, the, the function, the, the, the decision of the Sanhedrin just fueled the fire. The apostles rejoiced at their suffering. And this is a peculiar aspect of Christianity. At the very heart of belief in the gospel is a deep humility. Jesus suffered on our behalf. He gave up his glory to suffer for our sins, and he died for us. The highest honor we can have is to give our lives back to him. The, the result of faithful service is deep and unshakable joy. 
The promise of Jesus is not that our road will be easy. God is good and his power is great. The angel can and does set the apostles free from the prison. But their work and their lives are lives lived in sacrifice to their Lord. Their purpose and ours is to be Christ's, to belong to him, to witness him, and to do his work wherever we are and wherever God calls us to go. In the end, all of the apostles except John die as martyrs, persecuted for their witness of Jesus Christ. But in the end, all of the apostles are victors in the war of Christ against the kingdom of man. They are kings and princes in Jesus' kingdom. Their bodies are seeds planted in the ground, but their death comes with the promise of eternal and blessed life. And their lives were filled with hope. Their work was glorious because it was Jesus Christ's work. And God calls each and every one of us to take the plow and follow in their footsteps, not looking behind us. May we be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. May we have the fire that burned in the apostles, the Holy Spirit. And may it be said of us that daily in the church and in every house, we did not cease to teach or preach Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. satisfy this appetite. Work has become a cult. It's a religion complete with its own holidays. In fact, tomorrow in our country, we have a holiday to celebrate work, Labor Day. Paradoxically, a world of total labor deprives labor of meaning and it's in itself it becomes inhuman or invaluable. A world of total labor has no room for genuine rest or leisure, no time for a Sabbath. Holidays themselves are only a break, become only a break from work. How often do we hear or hear ourselves express ourselves at the end of a holiday that we're glad to be able to go back to work so we can rest? In the place of a Sabbath and a celebration, instead we have sloth, slothfulness. We have those that kill time. There's idleness, there's boredom, there's laziness. And in a world of total work, we see no end. We, we enjoy no fruit to our labors, and we never arrive at that seventh day. But God has given us rest on the first day. It's another of his good gifts to us. How ungrateful we are if we just toss that gift, gift aside as if it were one of the cheap gifts inside our happy meal. 
This table shows us that our labor is not endless or in vain because our essence is not wrapped up in the fact that we are workers, but in the fact that we are God's children who receive the gift of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. This alone gives meaning to our work. At this table, we remember the Sabbath. We learn to live as a sabbatical people. At this table, we learn to work from Sabbath and towards Sabbath, because God's gift of rest is our Alpha and our Omega. It's our beginning and our end. At this table, all are invited who have been baptized and live under the authority of Christ, his body, the church. When we eat and drink this... Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.